Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. As we turn, if you will, in your Bibles, the one that you brought with you, the Pew Bible or your Bible app, look with me in in, uh, Psalm 119. I'm going to read selected verses, but I want you to start with me there. Psalm 119, chapter 1, or 119, verse 1 through 8. We'll start there, and I'll tell you when I'm jumping ahead. But here we go. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous ordinances. I will observe your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And then turning to 33 through 40, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in your path of commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities. Be gracious to me according to your word. Confirm your servant, your promise, which is for those who fear you. Turn away the disgrace that I dread, for your ordinances are good. See, I have longed for your precepts, in your righteousness be gracious to me. And then to Psalm 1, and then to verse 105, 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to observe your righteous ordinances. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a trap for me, but I do not stray away from your precepts. Your decrees are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end." This, my brothers and sisters, is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty and gracious Lord, we gather this morning to hear your word read and proclaimed. And as we do so, O Lord, may our hearts be opened. May our eyes clearly see you and our ears clearly hear what you would have for us today. But, O Lord, as we see, as we hear, as we listen, may our very souls be transformed so that we would leave this place not as hearers of your word, but, O Lord, as doers of your word. In your Son's holy name we pray. Amen. So we like a lot of books in our family. We are bibliophiles. We probably could have a library of our own between all of our collections of books. And I've been thinking a lot lately about the kinds of books that you sort of accumulate over a life, over a lifetime. Books like guidebooks. You know, those books that sort of tell you how to do things. So for example, travel. Some 20 years ago when I was doing some international mission work, 
when, I would go to a, when we're going to a new country, I would go by the Fodors or uh, the Lonely Planet Guide to that country. So on my bookshelf, there's a book for Cuba or Jamaica or wherever. And also with just general travel, we went to those guidebooks to learn about the culture, to learn about the climate, to learn about neat things to see, what to expect when you're there, things to do, things not to do. You fast forward about 20 years later, and as my daughter, as she does her travels, she doesn't buy the guidebooks anymore. She maybe borrows ours or someone else's, but most of what she does, she does that guidebook work, if you will, on the internet. But there's still a value in having something to hold in your hand, isn't there? But it's not just with travel, these guidebooks. It's also things like life stages. For example, how many of you had bought the book sometime in the past, what to expect when you were expecting. And maybe you bought the corollary for your husband's what to expect when your wife is expecting. Probably the most helpful book for all of us was that one. But anyway, I'm about to digress. The other day I was walking through Barnes and Noble and ended up trying to make a shortcut and I got stuck on the aisle. And I mean stuck because all of a sudden four people blocked the other end. And I was on the aisle on how to raise children. I am by no means an expert on this, but I turned and looked, and there's the books, and I kid you not, side by side, How to Raise Great Children. And for those of you that look at your kids and go, ah, I'm not sure that I can get to that level, right next to it was How to Raise Good Children. Not judging, just pointing these things out. And then finally, you get to the dummies books, you know, Multivariable Calculus for Dummies, or The Mystery of Plumbing for Dummies. You know, there's a whole reason that these self-help or these guidebooks for travel or life stages or just the other things that we encounter, the reason why they're popular is that we don't like to be lost. We don't like the unknown. We're frustrated by the wilderness moments in our lives. And yet what we know is that in those wilderness moments, that's just a part of living, isn't it? Part of changing and growing up and maturing is being faced with things you never thought about, having to learn new stuff. As, you know, some of you were not math people in school, and your kid comes home and says, I need help, as happened in my house with physics, I need help with physics. I had to learn physics to help my kid with physics. Holy cow, that's crazy, right? But that's how we grow, is by sometimes having to dig deep and to learn. With change and growth as one of the constants in our lives, one of the things that we are constantly seeking, and I hear this from you all, is how do I live? How do I do it? How do I face this change? And what we want is we want a guidebook with all the answers. Because if we had a guidebook with all the answers, it would set our life at ease, wouldn't it? Because this book would show us the way to live. Show us who we would be, who we should be, how we should be. And that brings us to today's text. So Psalm 119 is a long psalm. It's probably one of the longest ones, if not the longest. One of you all asked me before worship says, did you budget enough time in your sermon to read the whole thing? It's 176 verses. I only read 24. Because see, this, this psalm is a poem. It's a hymn broken up into 22 eight-verse sections. But each of those 22 sections contains one of eight, if not more. It contains, it contains at least one of eight synonyms for the word of God. Words like law 
and promise, statute and commandment, decree, precept, ordinances, or word. Each of these eight verse sections is a mini prayer of its own in which the author is seeking guidance or lamenting or praising God for some way that God has directed them on how to live in the world around them. And see, this is the whole point because the psalmist realizes that it's this book, this God's word, that is the guide for us and the direction that we need for our lives. As we careen through life, as we face all the ups and downs, as we wish that we had a guidebook, nine times out of ten, we've had it all along. It's right in front of us. Maybe it's been sitting on a shelf at home, or maybe it's on your phone in an app. And for our kindergartners and third graders today, they have their own copy. Their own copy to open and to explore. This holy book, this holy Bible is the guidebook that we need for our lives. Now, unlike the multivariable for calculus or the mysteries of plumbing for dummies book, it doesn't always get down to the very specifics of what we're facing every day. But here's what I promise you. The more time we spend in it, the more time that we spend learning, the more that we realize that it's the foundation for everything that we need to address everything that we face every day in our life. What matters most is that we open it up and that we read it. What matters is not just that we read it, but it matters how we read it, how we come to understand its words and how we apply it. And then and only then do we realize that it is the guidebook, the only guidebook that we need for learning how to live in the world around us. It's the book that sets the direction of who you and I are called to be. If you take it at its very surface, if you take this book and you read it from Genesis to Revelation, what you find is it is the story, it's like I told our kindergartners and third graders, it's a story of God's love for all of the world. It starts at Genesis all the way up through Revelation. It's a story of God's love. But let me caution you on this, though. If you think this is like a beach read where you can just read it cover to cover, you'll get the gist of that story, but there is so much more. Because it's not like a novel written by John Hart or Martin Clark or Tom Clancy or even Delia Owens. It's not a beach read book that you can just kind of flip the pages and it's a page turner. It's got some spots in there that you really just have to kind of go, whoa, hold on. That's too much to handle today. But to really unlock the meaning of what is written in this book, it matters how we read it. We've got to take each passage and not just read it at the surface and say, oh, that's what this is what it must mean, but to go deeper underneath it. We begin to think about concept, the concept of God, and we think that we know what God is or what God might be like, and then we start to think about it a little bit more. My guess is that our image and understanding of God expands to be more vast than the universe, right? The same thing happens with God's word. One sentence has a depth of meaning. And so to truly get at that depth, to get what it is that God wants for us, it matters how we read it. My colleague Donald Jenkins, uh, who just retired, but uh, just a good friend, he's kind of got six questions. He says, these are the six questions I use when I want to read a piece of text. And he was sharing this with me a couple of years ago, and I think it's brilliant. And I've really started to use this on my own, and it matters. 
So to take a passage of scripture and as you read it to ask these six questions. What is strange about this text? What is God doing in this passage? What are the enemies of God doing? What are the people of God doing? What does the text say to me? So what about it? Those six questions, what is strange in the text? What is God doing? What are the enemies of God doing? What are the people of God doing? What does it say to me? So what about it? So you start to read the Bible that way. You start to have those questions and either write in the margins. By the way, I don't know about yours, but this is not a holy relic. This is a book to be used, to be worn out. They print these all the time. If you wear one out, you fill the pages up with notes and highlights. You can open up a notebook and start there or just go buy another one and keeps the study going. But as I think about that, as I do those questions, I think of over a parable that's been living with me. It's the parable that Jesus told of the vineyard workers. The man that owned the vineyard needed some help, and so he went to the corner where all the day laborers were, and he went at nine in the morning, and he said to them, he said, why don't you come work for me? I'll pay you $5 to work for me all day. And a bunch of them went. Came back about three hours later, about noon, and there were still some more workers there. And he said, do you not have any work? And they said, no. He said, come work for me. At three o'clock, he went back by and he said, hey, come work for me. At five o'clock, almost at the end of the day, there were still workers at the corner. And he said, do you not have work? And they said, no. And he said, come work for me. And almost as soon as they got to the vineyard and started work, the day ended. And so they lined up for their pay, and the, new, the ones that came at nine, they lined up, they were excited, and guess what? Out came the $5 bills, just what he'd promised. And then those that came at noon showed up. Guess what they got? $5. And then those at three, $5. Those that showed up at five almost before quitting time, guess what they got as well? $5. Now on the surface... This text is about salvation, and it's about the fact that it doesn't matter when we come to the kingdom, that it's available to us. But as I read that and read through it, I'm also wondering, is there a deeper message here for us? Is there a deeper message? Maybe it's something about equity versus equality, justice versus fairness, grace versus reward, maybe even contentment with the blessings that God has given us. I didn't just come up with that on my own because I, I came up with it because I wrestled with those six questions. I didn't just take the parable on the surface, but I started asking, what is strange? What is interesting? What is God doing? What does this mean? So what about it? See, when we begin to ask those questions and open our eyes, our hearts, our souls to the depth and maybe the meaning of what God is trying to speak to us today. And chances are, as we begin to unpack the scriptures with questions like that, it probably raises more questions, the chief of which is, how am I supposed to interpret this? What is this text supposed to mean for me right now? See, that's the beauty of the printing press. Think about back before time, back in the time before the printing press, the only copies of the Bible were made by scribes who sat in upper rooms and they copied it in pen and ink. So the only people that had a copy of the Bible were the priests in the church, were the royalty, the rich that could afford to pay people to copy it. So think about the revolution that happened 
when all of a sudden something could print this and you could walk into a store and someone could hand you your own copy of God's word and you could take it home and open it up and discover what was inside for yourself. Now we don't only have them on our hands, we have them in our homes. We even have them on our phones so you can sit in the carpool line and you can look up scripture and ponder it. But now because we have such access to it, we ask ourselves, is it supposed to be interpreted literally or allegorically or metaphorically or what? Or maybe some amalgamation of all of the above. The debate to that question alone has been rattled around the history of church. And what I love about Methodism and our theology is that we look in the writings of John Wesley, the professor Albert Outler, he realized that John Wesley used some tools. He used tools to interpret scripture to find out what it meant. So in addition to the scripture itself and what was on the surface, he used this idea of tradition, looking at sort of what was the history of the text, what was the context in which it was written, what was the historical understanding, but even how does it connect to what we're facing today? What are some things that happened back in the days of the Bible that we're facing that while they're not exactly carbon copies, they parallel each other? Tradition. But then there was reason, you know, the beauty of being created in the image of God is that we have minds in which we can debate and we can weigh things out and we can use logic to figure out the best ways to do things. And so as we come to grow, as we come to understand how the world works around us, we can also use reason to evaluate the text and its meaning today, especially with all the knowledge coming at us, with all the science coming our way. And then finally, there's experience. There's experience in it as you read a text. If something is nagging you, that's probably the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You should probably pay attention to that. If there's a passage in the scripture that's, that you're stumping your toe on, we should probably pay attention to that. That's his experience. And we ask, what has been my experience in the world with things such as this? Or maybe, what is the real world facing today that we need to pay attention to? So when we take the scripture and we look at it and we use these tools, it helps us not only understand it, but we begin to think about this from the standpoint of what is the overall message, and it's a message of grace. See, as Wesley interpreted Scripture, he always interpreted from the idea of grace. So if we use these tools to begin to look at the, at the Bible and think that maybe some things that were said so long ago aren't as literal. For example, in Deuteronomy, some of the dietary laws, one of the things it said is, don't eat pork. I don't know about you, but I know plenty of United Methodist Churches, and I see some of my retired colleagues around here, I know plenty of United Methodist Churches that they make their budget on barbecues. Think about that for a minute. So somewhere along the line, we move from the prohibition to don't eat pork to it's okay to have a church barbecue. Scripture, reason, tradition, experience. But more seriously, think about some of our history, some of the history in the past of this country, even all the way down to slavery just some 150, 160 years ago, the Bible was used by some churches to justify it because the Bible spoke of enslaved people. But scripture, reason, tradition, experience showed us the error of our ways. It showed us that maybe those scriptures contradicted a higher calling to love our neighbor as ourselves. And maybe that challenged the church in the late 1800s to be better and to be different. Challenged us 
as well. So we start to think about this, how we read the text, it matters to read it more deeply, to take notes in the margins, to really ponder those questions, to use the tools of scripture, reason, tradition, understand it, and it leads us all the way back to that last question that Donald Jenkins shared with me. So what? So how do we apply the text to our lives? We've got to remember that, first of all, that this is a story of God's Love for all of creation from the dawn of time up to today. But not only as we remember that it's a story of love, we also need to remember what is it that we discovered as we worked through those questions? What is it that we discovered as we considered scripture, reason, tradition, experience, our own interactions with the text? And then as we think about that, what won't leave us alone? Does the text compel us to do something? Does it speak to us? So in my own life, I think of that passage where Peter walks on water to Jesus. You remember the disciples were in the boat, it was in a storm, and they were afraid, and Jesus comes across the water, and they said, is it you, Lord? And he said, it is I, and the water's calmed. Well, Peter, in his Peterness, of you will, you know, his hubris, Peter says, well, Lord, if it's you, call me out of the boat. And so what does he do? The Lord says, come. And so as I'm looking at this text, I'm going to realize how often has the Lord called me and I've been like Peter and I've walked out of the boat and I've taken my eyes off the Lord and I fall and I stumble. It said when I think about this, as I think about what about this text that matters is that when the Lord calls me that I need to go faithfully and look the Lord in the eyes. And even when the waters and the world surround and swirl around me, whether it's nationalism versus patriotism or trouble in our denomination or worry over back to Egypt or back to normal or post-pandemic or whatever it is, that what I need to do is stay focused on God and on my calling and who God calls me to be. And if I'm focused the rest of the stuff, while it matters, won't matter as much. Because I'm focused on God, that I'm doing the work that the Lord has called me to do. See, when the text won't leave you alone, that's your so what. When it compels you to do something, that's your so what. And when you figured out what that so what is, and the next thing to do is honestly to pray on it. And make that to be your daily prayer, whether it's for the day or for the week as you live with that text. And just pray that the Lord will help you lean into this discovery, to lean into this understanding so that you might be, that we might be more faithful followers, more faithful students of the word, more faithful doers of the word. Because we've decided to anchor our lives on this, the guidebook for life, this roadmap for our journey of faith and living. So in verse 105, the psalmist writes, Thy word is a light unto my feet. I'm sorry, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a life and a light unto my path. The psalmist in 119 reinforces this over and over again in those 22 separate sections. It's this holy book, this guidebook for our lives. And if we take time to intentionally read it, to intentionally try to understand it, to intentionally to apply it to our lives, then the reward is great. It unlocks everything that we need for ourselves 
and more importantly for the world around us, just as God intended. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast for Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you will consider joining us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. Blessings. Blessings.